Hello, my name's David Linky, and I'm the Global Head of Tax and Legal at KPMG. And it's my pleasure today to welcome John Connors, who's the Group Tax Director at Vodafone, for a discussion about all things affecting the tax function. So thank you for joining me, John. Thanks, David. Very pleased to be here. Thank you. Not a problem. I should just say, actually, I've now been in the UK about seven or eight months, and I think I landed on day two. My senior colleague said I need to go and meet John Connors at Vodafone. And you know, I just want to thank you, actually, for your participation over the last seven or eight months in our Responsible Tax series, but also just the chats you and I have had about what are some of the emerging tax issues and that, um, you know, I think that are really on the agenda, not only for Vodafone, but for people in your position globally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a very interesting and exciting time to be in tax. The world has changed, you know, through the COVID pandemic and everything and ways of working and the tax environment has changed and is continuing to change. So I think it's an interesting and dynamic period in which to work. So I'm very happy to share some thoughts and experiences with you and maybe learn something as well from your experiences. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, a company like Vodafone needs no introduction, um, you know, in terms of the digitalization of the global economy that it's in the middle of as well. So I think it's a really great opportunity to have a conversation. If I could just set the scene a bit, John, I know there's been a lot of transformation in that, but I think a couple of the key things that came out of our recent CEO survey was the increasing prominence of tax on the risk agenda. And this was a survey conducted by about 1,300 CEOs across 11 jurisdictions. And there was a couple of key things. There was a concern about unilateral tax measures as governments emerge from the pandemic and what's the impact on business and the uncertain environment that that precipitates. I mean, you know, if you think about you know, I think we were up to about 11 trillion US dollars of stimulus in, as part of the COVID pandemic. And I'm not sure that inflation or growth alone will solve that issue. The second issue was, you know, the OECD BEPS changes, which we, we'll hopefully get to later in the conversation. There's great that there's multilateral agreement, but there's a concern about unilateral measures still impacting growth prospects globally. And then I think there's a recognition in the C-suite that there's an increased public focus on tax. And I know that's been something that's actually been close to your heart over many years. You were actually an early mover in this space in terms of managing the reputation and brand impacts that tax can have. They were three interesting issues um, that emerged from our recent CEO survey, which I thought we might touch on at some point during the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. And I think from a business perspective, I think we recognise that the business has its role to play in helping build back the economy, the environment and so forth. And that whether it's specifically relating to tax or whether it's the broader ESG agenda and the commitment to reform and sustainability and so forth, business recognises that governments aren't going to achieve their goals on their own and the business has got a role to play. And I think in doing that, the revenues that government raises and raises from business and primarily through taxation is of fundamental importance. So it's important that there's a dialogue about these issues and it's important that business and the tax representatives have a voice and that it's heard, but that it's a constructive dialogue. And that isn't helped, as you say, by a plethora of unilateral 
uncoordinated measures. So we probably moved in our thinking about engagements on individual governmental level Mm. to thinking far more about that international architecture, about the sorts of initiatives that come out of the OECD or the EU at the commission level or what have you, and are far more engaged now in thinking about the framework for taxation rather than the specific taxes in market, in country, and so on and so forth. So that's an area that I think we're really interested in engaging with. And it's not just the tax directors and the tax teams. It is, as you say, the C-suite. It is definitely a conversation that now takes place in our boardroom, in our audit and risk committees, etc., and in a very different way than it did 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Yeah, let's come back to that framework if we can, because I'm interested to get, you know, a a bit more of your perspective on that, John, if we can. Can we go back? Because I think our audience would be interested in your background, John, and, you know, how long have you been at Vodafone? Where did your career start and what your current role entails? Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I actually started um, sort of briefly in sales and marketing, international sales and marketing with uh, uh, with a company I won't I won't mention Um, But it delivered the best the man can get, shall we say. Um, But I changed pretty quick. And that was a really good formative sort of background and introduction to to commercial realities and and, and pretty tough commercial environment as well. But I changed sort of career fairly early on um, from then to focus on tax and to train in tax and always been intrigued by the legal, financial commercial and strategic aspect of the job. And I trained originally with what is now HMRC in the UK, focused on tax compliance, as it were, and then moved into the more technical and policy areas and was fortunate enough to then spend three years at the European Commission working on tax policy initiatives over in Brussels and then back at the UK Treasury Um, Mm -hmm. Again, dealing with international tax matters, primarily European tax matters there for the government. So that was all a a fair chunk of background in public services, as it were, before moving to Vodafone originally in 2007. And my initial role following that background was to focus on strategy and policy of the Vodafone group, the tax policy. And then you know, since 2012, I've had the role as global head of tax, which which oversees all aspects of the tax of the company. Still a big interest in those policy aspects and the governance and controls that we have, but also overseeing compliance, controversy, transfer pricing and all of that and building the team to make sure that we've got a team that can operate successfully across all of those markets that you mentioned earlier, somewhere I have direct responsibility in the UK and the group and others where there's just really a care and management for seeing what happens in our African markets or in India or in the European territories as well. So, um, Yes, I'm still going after a good long period of service to taxation. I, I now understand why you, you you have an acute interest in policy development and the frameworks of tax policy, given your time at the EU and UK Treasury. So I get it's um yeah, it's a really interesting background and grounding actually. So you know you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, John, that it's quite an interesting time to be in tax. In fact, someone said to me. The other day, the next five years should probably be the most interesting time in our careers. What's been some of the remarkable differences or changes 
that you think have emerged over the last couple of years? And what are you expecting to see in the next few years? Yeah, there's a lot. It's a big question. And uh, well, I mean, one thing I'd say that, you know, I don't think the fundamentals change that much. And and there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of discussion, a lot of brickbats are thrown about taxation, but the underlying principles really haven't changed. The concept that we're all trying to achieve the same result of paying the right amount of tax in the right place in relation to the value created and so on mm. and so forth. That's a mantra that's been there throughout my career, but the focus has changed and the environment has changed. And, and if I think back to I don't know, coming out of the 80s into the 90s and early 2000s, it was a bit of a game that was played between the authorities and businesses and yeah. so forth. And if you think about that time of deregulation and lack of control, yeah. et cetera, I think a lot of people were playing in that space. And we've come a long way from there to one where tax is definitely an issue for the boardroom and the C-suite. But much more importantly is the focus of attention of the politicians, of civil society, yeah. our customers, our staff and so forth, a much greater interest. And that leads to much greater accountability and focus for, yeah. for what we're doing. So the old school black box yeah. sort of creating new initiatives and ideas and dancing around accounting or tax rules, that's long gone. Yeah. And I think where we are today, we're still trying to find the balance between ensuring that there is a sort of distribution of taxes that's appropriate, um, that's fit for the modern environment of the digital society and where a lot more of the value is hard to sort of pin down where is it created, how is it created with Mm. uh, transactions that take place in the ether and the way in which we're mobile and rely on technology. So I think trying to nail down that framework for international taxation in particular and Mm. taxation of intangible values is really, really challenging and and really interesting. The slight caveat I have about the environments and the engagements at the moment is that there's still a sort of a bit of a thought out there that big business somehow isn't paying its fair share or it's not contributing to society. And I think we've got to get over that and ensure that we're all trying to achieve the same aims and the same goals and getting there by an approach that's sensible from a technical perspective Mm. that reflects commercial realities and is sensible. And and there is a bit of a danger, particularly in the current environment with record deficits and so forth, of countries, governments, individuals simply wanting to get more money from business, from big business or what have you, without really thinking about the consequences of that, you know, for our employees, for our customers and society as a whole. So um, that's a sort of generic sort of perspective. Maybe we'll come on to something specific. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting point, though, isn't it? Because there was a couple of interesting aspects of what you said there. I mean, the thing that surprised me is often our stakeholders interested in tax payments come from unusual areas. Like, so it's not just civil society or your activist groups or shareholder groups, employees, as you made the point, are quite interested in it. And it's something that, in a sense, has surprised me over the last five or six years that employees are quite interested in that aspect. I suppose it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, everybody gets their pay slip at the end of the month or the end of the week, and then they've got a big deduction for tax and national insurance, and, and they're certainly interested in that. But the reputational aspect of company is vital. And that's not just in tax, but the environmental, social responsibility, all of that is very much more important. And actually is a huge bonus, you know, in terms of recruitment, retention and so forth. 
These days, employees, particularly the youngsters coming through, the graduates and the guys on the shop floor, they want to know that they're working for a responsible company and that what the company is generating in terms of profit is also reflected in the taxes that they pay, the contribution they make to society and so forth. So I think we owe it to those people to explain what we do and be transparent and to be held accountable as well. Yeah, yeah. I know, and it's not the first time you've raised this issue as well, John, with me, as to how we change that perception that's still out there about big business paying their fair share. It's quite an interesting balancing act, isn't it? Because simple solutions are often simply to increase corporate tax rates. But you're right, it does have consequences because, you know, economists say there's direct consequences, therefore, to what wages and what percentage of the profit share is paid to employees. It's also relevant to investment decisions. So it's actually quite a complex matrix that people need to work through. And you would have thought about that a lot in your EU days and your uh, Treasury days in particular, I suspect. Yeah, I think that the difference is is that when you look at it just in that context of the financial metrics and Mm. so forth, so we start with the concept that the numbers are all important and that's our investors are looking for their return on their investment, the return on capital. The Treasury is looking at how much revenue it raises for its coffers and and the business is looking as to how much cash is going out of the door, Mm. etc. And I think that what's changed and because of the interest of the various stakeholders is that the narrative and the explanation has become far more important and far more relevant. And it's not something that we used to have to bother about too much. It was all about the numbers. It was all about the bottom line. Mm. And I think that's gone now. And I think we now have to explain why the numbers are what they are. And, And that sometimes involves trying to explain really complex issues of accounting and law and taxation and so forth but in a way that people can understand and appreciate and have appropriate challenge as well. So that narrative has really been what we've been focusing on in recent years. Let's just spend a bit of time on that, if we can, on that that ESG and narrative, because your tax and economic contribution report, you know, you've been issuing that for quite some time. It's a comprehensive document. It's really got some incredible detail in there, John, and you were one of the leaders in the field in terms of pushing those documents out there to really explain the story. So you want to talk about, you know, I assume within a Vodafone context, you had to get various buy-in, but it's consistent with the company's purpose and vision, yeah. so it aligned quite well. It, well, it did, but it's been quite a long process, and it's been partly by accident and partly by design, and mm-hmm. we've probably been through three stages of the iteration of that report. And the first was really, you know, we were caught up in controversy back in 2010, 11 and so forth. And we felt that we were being misrepresented or there were misunderstandings in the public domain and so forth. And we were very much reacting to the comments, the fury of some campaigners and so forth, and really found ourselves on the back foot when we thought we had a good story to tell. So we learned from that experience that it's really difficult to respond to Twitter, you know, at the time in, you know, 140 characters or less, you're trying to explain your global tax contributions or the resolution of a dispute that you've got in the country or what have you. So being reactive was not a good place to be. Yeah. So we then moved to take more of a front foot strategy to try and publish information and explanations and so forth, Mm. which I think we did successfully. And that sort of set the foundation for where we are today. But that, too, is probably based on a defensive mindset is that we have to defend what we are, what we do and how we contribute. 
and so then, you know, we've really taken that to a different level now where very proactively we put information in the public domain and we try to explain it. So we were the first and, and still one of only very few companies that published this OECD country by country tax yeah. report. And we do so on the basis that we think the numbers in and of themselves don't tell the whole story and don't tell the yeah. picture. But there has been a big campaign for publication of those numbers. Yeah. So we've said, look, we're happy to do that. Yeah. But we do so with the context of explaining where the numbers come from, how we contribute, how we're structured around the world, where there are controversies and issues and where there are points that we agree with or disagree with in international developments. And I think probably most relevant of all is the fact that we try and summarize the value chain of the company. Yeah. And this is almost your transfer pricing master file type approach, yeah. you know, how's right. the group structured and where is value created? And it's obvious where we sell to our customers. And in some respects, we're quite fortunate that in a regulated industry like telecoms, etc., we have separate legal entities in each country and we serve the market locally so that the normal sales and costs, etc., are pretty easy to show and to be transparent about. But then how do you structure an international group? Where do you centralize your procurement activities and how do you finance the company and the group? That's been the, the interesting area where to those who are interested, the information is there. For those who just want to look at the numbers, et cetera, they're there as well. And for those who want to walk through effective tax rates, so statutory tax rates, et cetera, we try and put the information out there. And the big challenge we're left with is now trying to sort of simplify that into a format that isn't 80 pages long and yeah, you know, it is a bit of an easier read. But that's been the journey we've been on. And the next phase is really connecting with that whole ESG agenda, which is sort of where you started the question, to be honest. No, no, no. We'll get back to that. I promise you, John. You talked about narrative and context. And when I read your document, actually, you dealt with the UK narrative uh, head on that arose in that controversy a few years ago, because what you basically talked about is the amount of investment in 3G and 4G licenses yeah. that you'd had to spend over time in the UK and why it was driving a particular tax take. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's very relevant in today's context is you see the European Recovery Fund, for example, and that's clearly going to invest in part in technology. And we're a technology company. We're a technology telecommunications company. And the lockdowns and the pandemic have shown the reliance that people have on communications in a way that two years ago, even we probably would not have been able to manage working from home or working remotely and so forth. So again, that sort of balance between European international funding of technology to build us out of the current recessive environment is going to be key. That obviously needs to be funded through taxation and through public funding, etc. But you also want to be in a position where those companies and those individuals and businesses that are part of the recovery are not undermined by paying excessive taxes and fees and charges, et cetera, for what they're currently doing. So we think that the engagement with governments and the understanding of governments and civil society has improved dramatically during this period as people have realized and understood the value of businesses and businesses that are well run, that are transparent and that have the governments in place, et cetera. So we think that there's been a positive experience from a business perspective coming out of all of this. Yeah. One of the other things in your tax and contribution report, John, was um, you dealt with where you might have inherited blacklist 
companies or tax haven companies directly, yeah. which I thought was really interesting. So in a sense, they may appear in your structure, they may have resulted from a previous acquisition or something that you inherited, but you dealt with that immediately and upfront in a transparent way. Yeah, and that's part of what we feel is our responsibility to do in a proactive way. And and that's what we encourage others to do the same. And, and it's great, particularly in the UK, a number of companies have taken that similar route and probably even surpassed what we do as well. You know, if you've nothing to hide, then yeah. don't be scared to publish what you've got there. And it pays dividends for us as well, is that yeah. from having that defensive strategy a number of years ago, we're now very actively engaged with journalists, with investors, yeah. and particularly an increasing number of ethical investment groups or people who are just interested, regulators and so forth, yeah. who are just interested in why you've got that entity in your structure. Yeah. What do you do in that location? How many people have you got? What are you contributing? What value is reflected in that, etc.? And it's interesting. It's a completely different environment from when you and I trained, which was focused on the accounts or the legal aspects of what you were doing, yeah? Well, I mean, I think you encapsulated it really well, John, because it was a black box, wasn't it? Tax historically was a black box. Very few people understood it. Um, And it's only been, in a sense, that transition's been made over the last decade, really. Um, So the trouble is that everyone's an expert now. No, no, correct. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's a policy expert as well, John. So, you know, it's, uh, no, no, but I think, I think you're absolutely right. But I think, I think the interesting thing is you were at the forefront of dealing in some of those controversies. So you were at the coalface actually when you had to deal with those. John, but the thing that's, um, what hasn't really surprised me in my time in this role over the last nine months, but various organisations around the world and various companies around the world are a different stages on that transparency journey, okay, and dealing with those multiple stakeholders on transparency and the question as to whether you should disclose country by country voluntarily and those type of things. What would your experience and sort of insights be to someone embarking on that journey at the moment? And how should they really think about it? I mean, I think our advice is to get ahead of the game. This is coming, you know, I mean, Going back to our origins of this, it is very uncomfortable in a position where people have a view about you and your business effectively that you don't think is appropriate. You need to be in front of the narrative. You need, and you you sort of need to look at yourselves as well first. I mean, part of what we've done in our policy environments is to make sure that internally within the company, within the group, we are managing things appropriately, that we will only take decisions that are commercially based. We will absolutely defend the right to do things in a tax efficient way, Yeah. but it needs to be driven by the commercialities of what we want to do. And we've seen nothing but good come out of that transparency in the publications, et cetera, that enables us to have a sensible dialogue hmm. with whoever is interested about the issues of the day. And we might not always agree and we might not always have the support of that particular stakeholder, but at least you're having an adult and sensible conversation. And I think it's inevitable that there will be more regulation in this area. And you're already seeing that there is this pressure for publication of the numbers of those OECD reports. There are varying initiatives to review and reveal uncertain tax positions. So assume that that's going to happen and then say, well, what do I need to explain 
where I am, what I do, what the numbers are. And if I'm uncomfortable with that, I should do something about it. And that's the challenge in terms of then saying the reliefs and incentives that you've got or maybe negotiated with governments. How comfortable and confident are you that they stand up to public scrutiny? And if you're not, then you really should be doing something about it. Yeah, yeah. The direction of travel in this space is pretty clear globally, isn't it? It's yeah. So I think I think that's good advice. Get ahead of it. Just to go back to a point that intrigues me, John, because I assume you're in the role. You there was constant press in that controversy that emerged in the UK years ago. You were reacting continually to that press. So it's quite difficult in that circumstance to get ahead to it, get your narrative accepted, because the media doesn't work that way. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't. It is mortifying if you get those headlines in the press, and then especially if you know they're misinformed or what have you. But make no bones about it. We were, on the one hand, we were on a charm offensive and we're trying to explain our position. Mm. On the other, our lawyers were issuing notices to people for defamatory statements and so on and so forth, which still sometimes persists. So you have to be careful. And as a quoted public company as well, you also have to be very careful that what you say and what you are publishing is accurate and is borne out by the facts. So you can't dance around the spin that some people might like to put on it. You can't play fast and loose with the narrative and the rules. And and that's, you know, sometimes a bit of a frustration because newspaper commentators, particularly social media commentators, can sort of say what they like with pretty much impunity. We can't make a statement that is factually untrue and distorts the market perceptions and so on and so forth. So there is a discipline to that as well that you have to be aware of. Thanks for that discussion on ESG and transparency. I mean, as I said earlier, I think uh, I always get something out of your thinking in that area whenever we talk. So thank you for that. If we can move on, John, to another issue, and that is COVID and coming out of the pandemic. You know, given where you and I live, John, things are you know seem much more optimistic. The vaccination program's gone well. Businesses looking forward to putting themselves on a growth agenda. I was in an interesting discussion the other day where people were arguing, well, not a lot of change by COVID. We'll have ended up with more debt that we'll have to pay back. But fundamentally, we're all trying to get back in the office. Whereas I think it's really driven, and I think you touched on this, some pretty significant change into how we work and yeah. the digitalization of our functions. I don't know, have you got a, a view on that from sitting inside you know, one of the world's yeah. leading digital services companies? Yeah, and uh, definitely the focus and reliance on technology is more important. Than, and you know, it's probably accelerated that process by five years or more. Yeah. We certainly were in a position two years ago where we were talking about the use of technology and we've been building out 4G and 5G connectivity and we're looking at Open RAN and the different systems and structures for ensuring the seamless connectivity, video conferencing, gaming, all the rest of it. And suddenly, you know, we were forced to be in that position. Every single one of us around the world suddenly sitting at home, needing to connect with our offices or what have you, public transportation, relying on that communication connectivity. So that's accelerated all of that big technology infrastructure. We announced last year coming out of the pandemic, a significant increase in our capital spending plans to accelerate this rollout of 5G and technology and investments in broadband and all the rest of it. So, you know, that's really pushed things forward. But even on a smaller scale, you know, unfortunately, there's probably a sort of migration away from shop stores to online 
sales and merchandising and, and all the rest of it. So that part has really accelerated the way we look at business. You think from a specific tax perspective, it also brings into focus the broad making tax digital agenda, yeah. you know, electronic filing. Again, it's been with us for a good number of years in a good number of countries. I think that process has been accelerated yeah. and people are used to working with the technology. So that's coming like a train. So we need to make sure our systems and processes, which internally are as complex as old fashioned spreadsheets and different yeah. systems and sources of data. So there's a big clean up operation to get that in order and make sure that the information flows through to our tax returns and our tax filings and our tax payments. And then another aspect is this whole concept of remote working and what does that mean? And particularly in international cross-border situation, can people work from one country? The technology enables you to do it. The tax systems, the social security systems, questions about permanent establishment, the tax infrastructure is not there to allow people the freedom to work wherever, whenever they want. And perhaps rightly so, that's a big debate that needs to happen. And that's one thing that coming back slowly towards an office or partial office or hybrid environment is absolutely top of our agenda as well. Yeah, I think it's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? Because at the start of the pandemic, John, all the HR functions rightly and all the companies were worried about the health of their people. So the immediate response was work from anywhere. Now, 18 months later, the tax issues of remote working really are becoming quite complicated and quite difficult. And so we need to have a conversation about that because that's the new way of the world. Then there will need to be some changes and reform in that regard. Yeah. And, and again, I think it comes down to the way that structure has been developed over the years has been done on an individual country by country yeah. basis and that each country has its own rules and regulations. I mean, they're not that dissimilar, mm. but each country is determined to collect its own share of taxes effectively mm. from people working or living in their countries and so forth. And again, I think it's one that's not going to be solved by individual countries no. and jurisdictions. It is something that requires an international architecture. And I know it's something the OECD have yeah. flagged recently as being something that needs work doing. And I think businesses like ours are now actively pushing for this to be prioritised. Mm. Okay, you mentioned international architecture. So I can't let you leave this call without getting a perspective on Pillar 1, Pillar 2 and, you know, and where that's all heading. I mean, I know that will be on your agenda, you know, to think through the implications as that emerges over the next few months. But what's your perspective on that, John? Yeah. I mean, so this is the biggest issue and biggest challenge that we've seen for many a long year. And I think start from the perspective that we're absolutely supportive of the need yeah. for that international framework to deal with the challenges of digitalization. But where we have some concerns is that this started out as a process, as an initiative that was designed to address the issues of big tech and particularly, to be fair, US big tech companies and where do they create value? How do they create value? Where and how is that taxed? And the concern that we have, it's become, let's tax the world's biggest multinationals more. And certainly in our sector, we have a plethora of telecommunication specific taxes on top of the corporate taxes we pay. We already have an effective tax rate in the high 20%. And we have add-on taxes in different territories from Turkey to Spain to Hungary and so forth. 
So happy to look at that international architecture and framework, but let's not lose sight of what it was originally supposed to be doing, which was dealing with market distortions and dealing with advantages that were created artificially. And I think the concern now is that it's simply a way of driving up the tax rate and the tax charge to multinational enterprises. And the drive towards political agreement, which has been remarkable and quite an achievement, I think needs to be tempered with an appropriate engagement with business, with Mm. stakeholders on the technicalities and so forth, because I think there are going to be potentially unforeseen consequences. And particularly if you're in the business of building infrastructure, um, if you're in the business of creating value for the benefit of society as a whole, there's a lot of companies that seem to be affected. You know, pharmaceutical companies seem to be, you know, potentially really in scope at the same time as they're the ones who've sort of rescued the planet from, yes. from COVID with the vaccines, et cetera. Yeah. And is due account going to be taken off the research and development and the longevity it takes to realise a return? So lots of issues there in this two-pillar approach. Mm-hmm. Pillar one probably more complicated administratively to determine whether or not you need to shift profits around. And I think bizarrely you will end up with some profit being shipped out of UK, US or Germany to India and places like that, which will be a bit strange. And then pillar two, minimum effective tax. I think we're all comfortable with paying a fair amount of tax or an amount of tax that's determined by tax authorities. But if you suddenly artificially increase that by insisting that every country takes an amount of tax, whether or not you are profitable there, seems a little bit strange. So we hope they they get the rules right and they hope that the haste to get a global agreement, which is fantastic, doesn't undermine the credibility of the technical work that needs to be done and addressed. Yeah, you raise an interesting point because in the drive to get a political agreement, you often deviate from some of the underlying principles or issues you were trying to solve. So, I mean, it's an interesting point, actually. One of the things that continually needs to be worked through, it's actually relevant to industries such as yours, where you're building infrastructure, John, and particular countries may be giving particular incentives to develop underdeveloped economies or particular areas, you know, how will that interact with a global minimum tax as well? Because tax policy can still drive in a focused fashion in particular areas, really significant positive outcomes. And that's another balancing act that people often well, they raise with me anyway in terms of how they... Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we go back to the beginning of this debate. I think the big question there is, are those incentives, are those reliefs, are they transparent? Are they open to everybody? And if they are, then they should survive and they should be encouraged to ensure that there is this build back and there is this um, infrastructure to help us drive the world's economy further. Hey, um, final question, John. And I know one of the questions I think our audience will be really interested in is sort of development of talent. And and I think one of the things that struck me in my conversations with you over the last seven or eight months is you have a deep understanding of the underlying policy intent of a lot of the tax measures globally. But I wonder, you know, for someone um, just starting out in a career in tax, what would your advice be to them, John, in terms of really getting the most out of it and developing it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think tax, it's a big, broad subject in a big, broad world. So you know, I think people need to get that experience. And we're, at Vodafone, we've recently developed a sort of development framework as a basis for discussion with all of our staff. And what we're trying to do is develop people and help people develop personally and professionally 
to cover all of the basis. And so if you if you look at what those key aspects of taxation are, clearly the technical issues and understanding is yeah. really important for the grounding. So you need that good knowledge and understanding. And certainly in our environment, it needs to be domestic and international. Mm. Um, but then I think, you know, you need to be able to to deal comfortably with controversy and disputes and so forth and do so in a professional way. You need to understand the business requirements for tax reporting, financial reporting, and you need to be able to deal with and understand that policy context. And honestly, you need to be able to communicate, you need to be able to engage and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot there, which I think what makes it so interesting and so exciting. But I think from early point in your career, you need to determine how broad am I prepared to go? How hard am I prepared to work on these different aspects? You know, conversely, there will be people who say, look, I want to be and need to be the deep compliance specialist focusing on the policy or the processes and the technology, or I want to be the deep technical transfer pricing specialist and expert. You have those choices, but don't go too narrow and too deep too early is what I would say. And think about the possibilities in practice, in government, in in business and so forth. And, you know, it's a fascinating world. And it certainly kept me busy and interested for nearly 30 years now. And it should be an interesting few years ahead as well, John. So uh, (laughs) I think uh, for all of us that are in the area, so it's good. Hey, look, I just want to thank you, John. Once again, it's been a great discussion. As I always find with my discussions with you, I always get something out of them. I think the leadership you've demonstrated in terms of that ESG space and transparency is really um, you know, first rate. So thank you for that as well. But thank you for your time today. Yeah, my pleasure. And as you can tell from my demeanor, I, you know, I thoroughly enjoy what I mm. do and, uh, and I hope everyone else does as well. Yeah, thank you.